welcome to the Adapting Places podcast. I'm really recording these fast one after the other compared to the usual because I really need to think through some of the bits I'm writing for uh, this course on the philosophy of emotions and I've got uh, a supervisory meeting this week where I really need to make some decisions about the, the PhD and how much focus really uh, to take away from other things and zone in on uh, the discussion of rationality and emotion and, and certain decisions. Um, and it's interesting it, it, just how I feel like I've selected the topic for my PhD, which is kind of in the area of vocational choice, which is, uh, I've tried to be so charitable in arguing against rationality and limited rationality, but I feel like lately I've really felt the urge to really go back from what has felt like uh, a type of mental gonzo journalism where I've held an opposing view just for a very long time just to really explore it in detail and see why we really truly need, do need something like rationality even if it's a broad sense uh, rationality kind of just what people would call reason and being able to reason it with somebody and I feel like the, I wrote in the conclusion of the essay I'm writing that I think that the, the title is in what sense could emotions uh, be ever deemed as rational and I really do want to put what I put in uh, in a very limited sense, at the end of the day, it's in a limited sense they could be deemed as rational because while I do believe they don't sit uh, orthogonally to rationality, emotions are a different thing, They're a different tool for a different thing, um, oftentimes. But thinking about these limited cases, where, as I mentioned in the previous episode, where following your heart. It's kind of uh, broadly reasonable because you've got no other tools or constraints. I mean, uh, not constraints, but it's a decision you're going to make just for yourself. It's totally uncertain, or at least you're not aware of one of the aspects of uh, a situation, whether it's going to be where you're starting from, the process, or the end goal, uh, which if you're interested in how I've defined uncertainty, you can have a look at one of the previous series where I really drilled down and into what I think uncertainty is and why in really uncertain situations uh, using rules of thumb is actually a, a rational thing to do. Uh, but I feel like I'm now looking at the, the detail literature on the philosophy of emotion. Um, I think it's going to be helpful to outline some of the 
the history of the study of emotion. Uh, and I think the first interesting question to think through is um, why it's only recently become a part of scientific investigation, uh, where traditionally it's been kind of considered as something that only philosophers really play with. Uh, and was referred to as something more akin to passions, which was a, probably a combination of, you know, urges, instincts, all sorts of things being put together and not necessarily having a, an established um, conceptual clarity. Um, but I guess this is the funny thing about emotions. They're not, you know, necessarily conceptual, all of them. So those who think about emotions as purely conceptual have only emerged in the recent years, you know, kind of spearheaded by some cognitivist theorist of emotion like Lisa Feldman Barrett, who's got a few really interesting books I keep referring to, like the uh, How Emotions Are Made, or now, like it's one of the seven and a half lessons about the brain. They all make a lot of sense in the in the way they bridge the gap between neuroscience and the philosophy of emotions. Uh, but I think uh, traditionally the, the his, in the history of emotions they've actually been seen as more uh, non-cognitive and um, more baked into us by evolution and a bit out of our conscious control. So at the extreme, you have the, the, the other extreme, you have the James Lang theory, who I found from watching a, a philosopher. Oh yeah, this way. Sorry, still walking the dog, doing this. And uh, yeah, so uh, I found out from a philosopher, because apparently it's Lange. And so it's the James Lange theory of emotions as bodily feelings which basically excludes out of its focus anything that doesn't have a, a bodily footprint on its own feelings and emotions in that way could be argued to be separate and uh, I'm not going to cover the details of that because I'm not an expert at all I just found it interesting that even within them there was quite a disagreement between James and Lang and only later in the way that the theory has been presented has been presented as a unified theory but you know let's put those in the two antipodes two extremes and then yeah as we are moving towards the middle there are people like the writings of uh, Paul Ekman who has argued for a universal set of emotions following in, in a Darwinian tradition using some of the insights from uh, his research uh, with uh, a variety of groups of people over time and I think he takes it a bit too far by arguing that there is you know a universal set of emotions but also then they have this uh, consistent footprint you know the anger has a specific face to it and and this is actually the, the sticking point between him and uh, Feldman Barrett, who criticizes his methodology quite quite a bit, um, but I do, I do I do I do personally believe there 
there is such a thing as universal emotions, but limiting the set of how many to just the basic ones like Eichmann does, like five or six basic ones like the inside out cartoon is a bit much. And also expecting that they all have this average footprint on the face a bit much, given how much cultural difference there is. But at a more abstract level, it could be universal emotions that are natural. Uh, and I guess uh, on the other side, in between, kind of middle of uh, quartile, whatever you want to call it, not extreme cognitivist, but not extreme, but not on the side of that much naturalism, is uh, kind of the philosopher Jesse Prince, who talks about gut feelings and emotions as is uh, non-cognitive, non but at the same, they're kind of, actually I don't know if I've understood it in its entirety, but I feel like his is where I land the most. There is a cognitive component to emotions where you can kind of, you know, it's, it's telling you something about what you're perceiving from the world, but it's, uh, it's not specific, oftentimes misfires, and you gotta learn what to what to make of it. And the specific examples that have been intriguing me for a very long time, but I guess they are unacceptable somehow in the discussion of how scientific research actually works, are those feelings of eureka. When you feel like after doing loads of primary data collection, you get these moments of, aha, eureka. Uh, because I guess, Oftentimes they do misfire. I mean, even Eureka itself, the, that moment when Archimedes gets that feeling, think about it, he's going into a bath tub of water and you know, changing your state, whether it's gonna be hot or cold, feels a certain way. And if you try to ascribe that to uh, some sort of a synthesis that you've been working on in your head into you know, some theory, Sometimes it might be misleading, you know, just because it's going to be really memorable because your body felt under a certain state. And I definitely know that when I do long ultra, ultra distance running, I do it for that kind of feeling because pressure seems to force you to think through things differently or things appear onto the surface that wouldn't have. So whenever I'm stuck, I actually go for one of these long ones. Uh, Right, they do help, but then again, it shows you that it's you know, it's not very reliable. So you gotta limit it. But then at the same time, we crave it. We crave positive feelings and emotions. So the question then is, um, if you crave positive feelings and emotions, are you prone to be a bad scientist potentially? I think. Does that mean that? Living the life of a scientist could be miserable, potentially. But I think what that approach doesn't account for is some of the things that I've encountered in geography that talk about non-representational theories where, I mean, there's little in the world that tells you 
that there should be a consistency in the world that your rationality might be trying to to grasp anyway so why expect that oh, that's a, i feel like that's a brain fart i don't know where i was going with this one just trying to look for something that could be my own contribution because i feel like at the moment i'm just parroting what i kind of barely know as as a literature but again it's not supposed to be my forte it's kind of to the side of what i tend to be interested in i just really felt that course would have helped me dig to the possible deepest uh, space of this blind alley of going towards the emotions uh, when discussing why you know, not why how do people make decisions i don't know i just can't seem to have a working model even of the the field of the study of emotion maybe it's just because it's new to me or the field itself is new in other fields you come in you you get deep and you get that sense of oh this is kind of what it's about um or maybe maybe just we, we're talking about too many different phenomena that have little to do with each other and it's like it's just anything that's other than what we can make sense of as rationality uh do you know what i mean it's like we have rationality and under emotions and feelings we just lump anything that potentially could be in the long term we might find out oh do you know what these are best looked at as entirely different phenomena because one is you know you had an insight into the nature of reality through a non-traditionally rational way and then the other one is just needed a poop um, <laughs> yeah i'm feeling like it's probably not as fresh as previous one but sometimes you just gotta have brain farts in public to think through things better next time hope this is helpful for my writing session tomorrow don't know if it's gonna be helpful to anyone else to listen to this but it's going out